Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me as always is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So today we're going to talk about something I think we've touched on sort of briefly before, and that's relics. Uh, whether Yay. it's teeth or pieces of the cross or, um, I don't know, bones, nails. Things that people have touched, yes. Yeah, there's a so many things. ton of them. <laughs> some religions yes. like them, some religions don't. Let's talk about it, because they were super popular in the Middle Ages, I think. They were. They still are, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, a lot of religions have relics, so we'll begin by defining them. Relics are, this is not like a formal definition, but this is your basic average definition that I'm giving here, any physical part of a holy figure, a saint, a prophet, um, maybe a hero, right? Um, or in many cases, it can depend on the culture or religion, but in many cases, it can also be any physical object that the figure touched or used. Hmm. So, um, clothing is a big one. <laughs> um, but in some cases, also, if you go to shrines even to this day, so for example, um, we will talk about, well, we've talked about St. Nicholas. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Santa. Yeah. We've had some Christmas episode. We talked about Santa. And he is a Mirabolite. He gives oil. St. Nicholas, the original here. Um, and... Uh, the caretakers of the shrine, essentially, um, will dip little pieces of cloth in this and sell them. And usually these types of relics are not terribly expensive because, of course, they keep coming. Um, and it's a way for the faithful to have something, mm-hmm. right, that you can then carry with you and, you know, pray to it and he will intercede on your behalf. Um, so... So this is sort of, this is probably, this is a step further, right? Because we usually think, um, oh, something that they used, right? Sure. So um, famously, probably the Holy Grail. We'll touch on some that we'll get more into when we actually cover King mm-hmm. Arthur. But <laughs> the Holy Grail, of course, is a big one. Um, it is supposedly, it, I mean, it's a lot of things, but it, it's a cup, right? It just means it's a cup. Obviously, if you have watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you have... Watch, let's be fair, one of the great renditions of the Grail on screen. Um, the greatest rendition, of course, of King Arthur and the Holy Grail is Monty Python. Right. <laughs> um, but they never find it, which is part of the point. Um, part of the point of Monty Python. Um, but also kind of the point of King Arthur and the quest in the first place. Um, but in Indiana Jones, of course, you, they do find it. Um, you know, they walk into this room, sort of, and there's just tons and tons of gorgeous golden goblets. Um, which, of course, kind of references, but also satirizes. We talked about this the past few episodes, actually. Um, the wealth of the church. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are all these jeweled goblets. Um, and it's also kind of a reminder of things like St. Francis dies and is like, throw me out on the hillside. So they do, but then they go get his body and like build this <laughs> giant cathedral over it. Um, I mean, it's a basilica, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is not what he envisioned, shall we say. Um, so there is this sense, right, that if 
the church knew they had this cup that they would encase it in jewels and all this stuff. Anyway, but of course, hidden away is this little wooden cup <laughs> that turns out to be the real one. Um, and that's sort of the point, right? That it would have been this simple cup because he was, you know, mm -hmm. clearly not a rich dude. All right. So it's supposedly the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper at the installation of the Eucharist, which we've also definitely talked about, um, and was then used the next day at the, well, it's not exactly the next day, but anyway, um, sort of. That's night, and then we have Good Friday, um, and used at the crucifixion. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> um, this is sort of the, the uh, path of the grail. So it's used at the Last Supper, and then somehow... Usually, the assumed person is Joseph of Arimathea, that he collected it after the soldiers, like, arrested Jesus, I guess, um, and carried it off, probably to have a relic, basically, of this event sure. before, you know, um, and then was at the crucifixion and used it to catch some of Christ's blood. Mm -hmm. So it becomes this, you know, and then carried it off again, apparently. Anyway, so it becomes this very important... This, the um, spear relic. in that story becomes a... Um relic yes, as well the spear of just yeah absolutely so um so and that's that again is a little counterintuitive right so um the the cup of course we understand like jesus used it and then it was used to catch his blood the idea that something today that like you could buy a pair of jeans have or have an old pair of jeans and cut them up mm -hmm. and take one tiny piece of your old pair of jeans and if you saw the grail and it was, like, available, you could, like, touch, you could, like, wipe it with your piece of jeans and carry it off with you. And it would then also be a relic. Mm -hmm. That is a step that um, is very important to Catholicism, but not all cultures believe. Right? That's kind of extra step. Okay. The idea that you can have a piece of cloth and wipe it on, for example, the body of a saint, which happens at shrines. Um, saint Anthony in Padova. Mm -hmm. You can you can buy little cards where there's a tiny piece of cloth that has been wiped on his body. Right. Um, so that, that's a step removed, right? It's a, not something he touched, it's touched him, but it's not something that when he was alive, he touched or used. Right. Um, so the grail fits that, you know, what we think of as a relic, something he really did use. Mm -hmm. um, the spear is a little bit different because uh, this, of course, you know, it's a weapon that was used against him. Right. You would not necessarily expect that to become a relic. And yet, um, because it did, there was a miracle associated with it. A couple of the gospels, um, suggest that when his side is pierced with the spear, that water or blood and water come out, which is sort of the significance of baptism in the Eucharist. And it also cures the blindness, right, of the guy who's blind. Okay. Standing there. <laughs> Well, makes him blind, but then, yeah. you know, okay. okay. So, um, so there's this sense of, yeah, that it's miraculous. I mean, it, right. it makes sense in the same way that Easter being a season of celebration makes sense because of the whole, like, salvation thing, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so this is, and this is, it's, it's a spear. It's also known as a lance. It's also the Spear of Destiny, so back to King Arthur, which we'll cover it again. But, you know, yes. so Longinus, um, who becomes a saint, 
<laughs> Longinus. Um, also counterintuitive, to be honest. Kind of, yes. Um, and it's pointed out, like, he, he doesn't, he is not named in the Gospels. He is named in, like, extra <laughs> biblical tradition, I guess you mm-hmm. would say. Um, he, he is named Longinus, so this is when he served. Uh, but the, the, one of the soldiers piercing the side with the lance and immediately, right, blood and water pours out. That's John. So, um, so, and that's the miracle, right? So not just blood, but also water. That is the baptism. Um, and then, yes, you sort of get this extended, um, story about Longinus that is definitely not in the Gospels. <laughs> um, but that is in some of the apocryphal Gospels, which are fantastic. Um, the Gospel of Nicodemus and the Acts of Pilate, which are really fantastic, have some incredible stuff. The Middle Ages really loved them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's in them that um, shows up. <laughs> that shows up a lot. That shows up a hmm. lot and really becomes important, important, important to medieval tradition, but also to literary tradition. To yeah, I was going to say, I feel like some of that was yeah. referenced in uh, The Master and Margarita, which yeah. means it was possibly also referenced in Faust. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it becomes a very sort of standard part of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of sort of the, um, yes, you know, um, I mean, it's a little bit also like the thief, right? So the good thief, they're two thieves, right? Yeah. So they're both getting also, they're both getting crucified as well. But the one who believes in Jesus is saved, right? Um, and so there is this sense that um, the soldier obviously does not believe when he stabs him. You know, he's just trying to see if he's dead. That's the point, right? <laughs> but then, of course, upon the sort of miracle, and again, we are combining what the mention in the Bible that this happens, which is to say that one of the soldiers does spear him in the side, with then the whole rest of the story, which is not in the Bible, which is that upon this, um, right, the sort of miracle of the blood and water, the blood and water is in the Bible, but then the miracle of this... Um, is how, you know, we get St. Longinus, how he becomes, how he decides to become a saint. I mean, how he ends up becoming a saint, I guess you could say, right? Because he has been blessed sort of with this miracle, even though he started as a non-believer. Yeah. Um, so yes, so then obviously that and the saint and the spirit itself, because it created this miracle, all of this becomes um, very important. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there we are. So, um it's also a reminder, though, that weapons um, have a very long history as relics mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and so this goes to um, sort of this is what so we've discussed what relics are right there. These physical objects that connect you to the sacred, essentially. Um, and that is, of course, the key um but when you you can push back actually earlier um we'll talk about that in a sec the other thing is what do relics do (laughs) and so that is also of course where you get the spear right relics do themselves do miraculous things right Mm -hmm. so um of course the miracle is done by jesus in some ways who has died at this point but you know He's harrowing hell. He's doing things. Um, in medieval tradition, of course, he's harrowing hell. That 
gets dropped out of later tradition. Um, but there's also the sense that the spirit self has power, not just because it touched the body, but because it sort of helped create this miracle of blood and water. Mm -hmm. um, and so relics, they can protect you, right? This is something probably people know. Uh, you know, you take a medal with you, a Christopher medal when you travel, St. Christopher, mm -hmm. um, things like that. Or like a cross protecting you from vampires. Oh, Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, yeah, they protect you. Um, and in this case, right, it, the, it has to be the actual relic, right? This is the sort of thing about mm -hmm. wearing a cross is symbolic of this fact, right? Um, they can heal you, which of course is the point that you can go to a saint's shrine and pray to them. But if someone like brings a relic, maybe you can't go there, maybe you can't travel, but someone will bring a mm -hmm. relic. You can pray to Oh, it. yeah. Um, there's a springs, right, where they, the Madonna, and they get water, yes. and you bring the water back to the person who's sick, maybe, or... Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, or dirt. Yeah. This is also, of course, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, <laughs> where they dip the yes. cup into water and use it to heal. Yeah, the Sean Connery. Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um... Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, so they can heal you. Um, this is a important point. Um, and then they can give you power, potentially. Um, we do not necessarily mean this in an evil sense, although we will talk a little bit about that. Um, but they can potentially give you a kind of power. Like, for example, you couldn't swim before, but now suddenly you get, fall into water and suddenly you can swim. Um, you know, the miracle could just be that you don't drown, but maybe suddenly you could actually swim, right? Um, hmm. So things like that. Um, also, um, you know, armies would carry relics with them under the sort of sense of this will help me conquer, right? To conquer in God's name. I mean, that's one of the big things. Sure. And so speaking of like the cross, right? Helen or Helena, the who is the mother of Constantine, has a vision, finds the true cross. Constantine, you know, marches into battle under its, under the symbol of the cross, but also has the true cross, you know, behind him, so to speak. <laughs> um, and the sense that this is why he conquers, mm -hmm. right? Um, partly because he's a believer, but also he does genuinely have sort of the power of the true cross, right? Um, so, power. Um, it might also, you know, you're the legit ruler, a little bit like Sword in the Stone type of thing here. Um, and then finally, of course, it enables spiritual or divine intercession. So that's what's going on in all of these cases, really. Um, the idea is that these are, um, you know, permeable <laughs> membranes, essentially, mm -hmm. to the other world, kind of, right? These are places, it's like a two-way microphone, uh -huh. Right. These are places where that's always on. It's an intercom that's like always on. Yeah. Right. <laughs> These are places where when you speak to the saint, they hear you. Um, and then they may have to intercede up the chain, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to the Virgin or to Christ or to God. Um, if you have a relic from the Virgin or Christ, then you're right there already. Um, but that they will then intercede for you. All right. So you can right. have their, their cell phone number, basically. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And that is, of course, the real point. That's why that physical 
aspect is so important, right? That's why it's different to have a piece of the two cross than to just wear the cross, mm -hmm. right? Um, it is worth pointing out also, because we did recently talk about the Eucharist, um, that there is a <laughs> really interesting sense um, one of the things, of course, that happens as people, as once transubstantiation has been sort of defined in Fourth Lateran, 1215, um, and there's this campaign to sort of make people believe it, <laughs> and as we sort of discussed with the heresies, right, uh, campaigns against people who don't believe it, um, the issue of people thinking of the Eucharist as a type of relic. Ooh, okay. Right? And the reasons why it, it's not, of course considered one, um, theologically, <laughs> in orthodox the theology, right? Um, but you can see how, right, it is the body of Christ. What could be more important than that? Mm -hmm. So stories, there are tons of stories, and there are miracle plays, and, um, you know, sometimes it's evil Christians, sometimes they're definitely anti-Semitic, it can be Jews, um, but finding ways to sneak um the Eucharist, right, like they'll have it on their tongue, but they won't actually eat it, right? They'll sneak it home and try to use it for something, mm -hmm. right? Um, because there's that sense of thinking of it like a relic somehow that it has this power and you can use it for something. Um, and then usually, of course, in the stories, right, the, that, you know, whether it's an allegory or a, you know, play or whatever it is, um, it will, you know, it'll bleed or, the, you know, Jesus will actually appear to them and be like, how can you do this to me? And everyone will feel guilty and terrible and they'll repent and some of them will probably get in big trouble. You know. Um, Jesus is the ultimate anyway, Jewish so, mother. <laughs> yes. I'm so basically. disappointed. Um, there is there is the sense of this. Yeah. Yes. How can you do this to me? Look at what I... Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. So there's this weird sort of... Um, but it's the reminder that, of course... Um, like theologically, all of these things are very carefully thought out. They're huge disagreements, obviously, all over the place. But, um, but there is a very careful way that a lot of these things are defined. But you can, of course, see how a layperson, or even not necessarily a layperson, right, mm -hmm. someone who maybe doesn't fully agree with the orthodox line, would start to um, intermingle some of these ideas. Sure. Right. Um, like, why pay for a relic when you can just have go to communion, right, if you're a priest or something. And of course, later in the Middle Ages, when communion is more frequent, that's when these things really start to pop up, right? Um, but you can just, like, have the Eucharist. Yeah. Like, it, it is the body of Christ. Like, what's the better relic than that? Um, but of course, yeah, that is not, <laughs> not a relic. It is not appropriate. You are not allowed to do that. Um, but there are a lot of these stories. Yeah. Um, so there is that weird sense, though, because then at the same time, the campaign for the Eucharist, there are a lot of people, particularly women, who we've sort of talked about this, but um, stories that, you know, when they take communion, that they um, are healed or that they feel blessed or, you know, just sort of these miraculous types of things that aren't necessarily that unlike what could be an experience in some ways, with a relic, right? So you, you know, it, it sort of you can see where people start to mess around with these things, of course, right? And think that you know, why not? I mean, yes, maybe a relic can heal your blindness, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like longinus. Why there's a you know why they thought a blind soldier again? It does not say that in the Bible, of course, but um, a blind soldier would be asked to 
coax something. Him seems weird. Yeah. But whatever. Uh, anyway, um, but there we are. But yes, the, you know, so why go to all this trouble to do something like that if you, you know, if the Eucharist will do this for you? Anyway, um, so yeah, so problems definitely arise here and there <laughs> with, with relics. But these are sort of the, the ideas behind them, right? The sort of things they can do. Um, and it's worth pointing out, so like I said, weapons do sort of go back as relics. So even before we get to all the religions we kind of know about, ancient Greece, and of course, even before ancient Greece, you go all the way back to Egypt, you have some very famous funeral rituals mm -hmm. in a lot of these places, right? Rituals in which, for example, in Egypt, famously, <laughs> um, the physical body is important. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can be, you are buried with a lot of stuff, right? So the physical body, but also the physical objects. Yeah. Hmm? Oh, I said grave goods. Yes. But um, yeah. it feels like underselling it, honestly, for what yes. the Egyptians did. <laughs> yes. I mean, of course, you know, we're thinking like the pharaohs. I mean, yeah. you know, in any society, the people on top get stuff that the people who are not don't, right? <laughs> it's good to be the um, king, right? Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. Um, but funeral rituals, so you, you have these funeral rituals and people, right, the, and the physical importance. And obviously this is one of the things we define as human, right? Mm -hmm. The humans bury their dead. Um, and there are sort of ongoing conversations like, did Neanderthals do this? You know, it can be a little unclear, Um you do find, like, they find graves where it seems like the bodies have been placed and maybe they had something with it. So, but anyway, but certainly people, Homo sapiens, do this. So the, this physical sense of death not quite being the end is something that is very, I mean, sort of indelible to what people are, kind mm -hmm. of, and how people work, right? So you fast forward a bit. Um, yeah, Egypt, of course, you have very elaborate funeral rituals. Um, and very elaborate senses of kind of what happens after death. Um, you can take it with you in these instances, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, this is the point of grave goods, really, right? Um, although, you know, in different cultures, of course, in some cultures, grave goods are understood as something you can then take with you. Mm -hmm. In some places, it is more understood that, like, you have earned this, so it gets buried with you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean you can take it with you, but you... Right. To keep it. <laughs> I noticed um, um, symbolic of who you were. At the beginning of Beowulf, when they're talking about burying one of the kings, they sort of throw a bunch of money and stuff onto a boat with him. And then they say, mm -hmm. some poor guy found the boat and, like, kept the money. So, yeah. and they don't seem, like, particularly upset. It's more like the symbolic right. act of, like, putting the gold coins with the dead king is yes. the important part. Yes, he is not necessarily expected to take them with him. Yeah. The fun thing, of course, about Beowulf is that for a long time it was unclear whether it not, all of that was true, and then they found Sutton who. Aha. And yes. they're like, oh, <laughs> you could be buried with all this stuff. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, so this idea of sort of burials like this. Um, so in some places, of course, certain, right, kings or heroes are are remembered. This also goes to Egypt, of course, but also Greece, um, where you can become associated with the gods. Um, maybe you're understood to have become a god, right? There, So there is this sort of crossover. A lot of cultures also have sort of ancestor 
worship or ancestor sort of um, rituals. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's unclear (laughs) at what point all of these things that we're really very familiar with, of course, to this day, right? I mean, um, we treasure things that belonged to people who've died, not because they're worth money necessarily, but because they're just important to us because they belong to them. Sure. Right? So at what point this started to become something more is a little unclear. Um, at some point, it's mentioned for the Greeks um, as early as kind of Iron Age, early Iron Age, so it's like circa 1200 BCE. Um, this is around the break, right? Mm-hmm. Which is commemorated later by Homer as kind of the Trojan War, so there's this, you know, there's kind of big old, uh, you know, in what is the known world at the time for them, right? The Mediterranean, there's a kind of a big break, right? Um, society kind of goes into decline for a bit, come back on the other side. Um, the archaic period, which is what comes back on the other side with Homer, for example, like in the 700s, um, down to the invasion of the Persians in Greece in 480. Um, this is all BCE, of course. In the archaic period, so the sort of 700 to 480 period, that's when we really know about them. So the, but these hero cults are mentioned for the Iron Age, but we really know about them existing from the archaic period. And how exactly they <laughs> come into being, it's not clear, so we're gonna ignore that, really. But essentially, what happens is a lot of the sort of local heroes or kings who may may have been thought of as ancestors. I mean, a lot of people, you know, um, like Theseus is kind of the archetypal ruler of Athens. And, you know, Athenians, some Athenians would trace themselves back to him even. So anyway, at some point, local heroes start to become something more. And so you sort of get what you call hero, what are known as hero cults. And they aren't necessarily considered gods. There are some exceptions like Hercules. Um, Hercules is not local, for one thing. He's Panhellenic. The Greek world loves him. Um, Asclepius would be another one. So they're kind of universal, and they are potentially gods, ultimately. Like, Hercules kind of becomes a god. Mm-hmm. So, um, but generally speaking, <laughs> there is more of a distinction between heroes. They're not gods, but they're very important, and they will do a lot of these same things that we have discussed. Um, they will protect you, right, in death. Um, if they are buried nearby, right, and you pay attention to their tomb or whatever, uh, maybe sacrifice to them, things like this, um, treat them like you might the sort of Catholic deities, the underworld deities, um, they will protect you. They might help help you in battle. I mean, they might... So there are a lot of these similar things. But it's usually about the, the tomb, right? Like, where are you buried? Mm-hmm. It's... It's a little bit less about their stuff. So even their bones. Um, there are some exceptions. So like Sparta said they stole Orestes' bones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that this helped them in battle. And let's see, Pelops' shoulder, shoulder blade, supposedly existed, um, I think in Olympia. And that's because Pelops, um, he, he's Theban, um, Tantalus, <laughs> famously like, he's Tantalus' son, Tantalus. Oh. Where we get the word tantalize, right? He's the one who, in the underworld, can't drink and can't eat. Um, but he's dying of thirst and hunger. But, you know, 
eternally. Um, he killed his son, Pelops, and served him to the gods. And all of the gods realized it, except Demeter, I believe, who ate part of his shoulder. So then the mm. gods resurrected him, gave him an ivory shoulder, and, yeah, he ruled, and he had kids. And so Thebes, though, if you know the plays, <laughs> Thebes was kind of a cursed city. Let's just put it that way. Um, Oedipus is from Thebes. I mean, yeah. So they're, they're gonna think. Um, I mean, Dionysus is from Thebes as well. Pentheus, the Bacchae. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, so Pelops, so Pelops' shoulder blade is a kind of specific thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he only had one. So presumably this is the other one that wasn't this eaten. The remaining. And, um, yes, and so there's some, but there's also something important about it because of the shoulder that Demeter ate, but it's, it's a little bit weird. Like, even for the Greek, this wasn't super common. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things like Hercules' bow, and Hercules, Heracles, whichever. Sure. In case I say Heracles, I just wanted to clarify. Um, but his bow, he gives it to Philoctetes, who uses it in the Trojan War. Um, but then it's not clear that, like, it stays around, right? So whereas, for example, the Spear of Longinus is, you know, one of those relics, again, right? King Arthur, the Spear of Destiny, it hangs out in the world, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. go anywhere. Um, I don't know. What happened to the but, like, is it just buried with Philoctetes? Like, it's not sort of clear, but also it doesn't seem to be a thing that, like, people claim they have. Okay. Right? Um, or even Odysseus's bow, famously, mm-hmm. that he only he can string, right? So th- it, it's not that these things don't exist. Like, some people might be like, I have the sword of Hercules or whatever. But it's it's not as big a thing. The thing is, like, where are they buried? And the idea is that they will protect the place where they are buried. So there's a really physical connection. Okay. Um, and it really sticks to the body. Like, it's less about, less about stuff that they've used. <laughs> um, and more about them. Uh, and so Oedipus, speaking of Oedipus, um, he famously, he's banished, of course, from Thebes. His sons are told, they're fighting it out for the throne of Thebes. Of course, they will famously kill each other. But before they do, um, they are told that theoretically, if, you know, Oedipus sided with one of them, that that one would win. That whoever Oedipus decides to protect, or whatever city he decides to protect when he dies, wherever he ends up being buried, basically, um, will be, you know, good to go. Okay. Essentially. <laughs> like, under his protection, that will be very, very strong. Um, and he obviously does not go back home to Thebes, Oedipus Aclonus, which is Sophocles's, you know. It is his last play about Oedipus, and also it's the last, I mean, it's the end of Oedipus's life. Um, so chronologically, it is also the last play about Oedipus that Sophocles wrote, both literally and chronologically, it is the last play Sophocles wrote about Oedipus. This is what I'm trying to say. All right. Um, Oedipus at Colonus. <laughs> Colonus is the suburb of Athens. Now it's downtown, of course. But back then, it was a little, it was, it wasn't a suburb, but it was, it was a deem on the sort of outskirts of what was then downtown. Um, and it was the grove, the grove of the Furies was there. Okay. Um, and... The Furies, of course, are, they torment you if you have killed a blood relative and immediate blood relative. You know, a distant cousin's probably okay, but immediate blood relatives <laughs> are not. Um, so they will torment you. And so they're grow, so they're considered dangerous, right? They're known as the, I mean, the Furies, right? <laughs> so, um, and it's this very interesting sense because usually, um, the dead are sort of polluted. Yeah. Right? Which is why, like, cemeteries are supposed to be outside of cities. A lot of times they're not. But cemeteries are sort of supposed to be away from things. There's a good reason for that, of course, because otherwise you're, like, polluting your groundwater and stuff. Like, you really are. But 
anyway, this, you know, but it's just one of these mm-hmm. things. But heroes are considered differently, right? That they are somehow protective. So, and Oedipus, of course, as a human being is very much like the Furies. He's very polluted as a human being, <laughs> right? He killed his father and married his mother. So he really... He was a has, piece of work. He has some issues, As they yeah. say. So, yes. So in Oedipus of Clonus, he shows up at the Grove of the Furies, and people are like, oh my god, you can't go in there. And then they're like, oh wait, you're Oedipus. He's like, yes, and I can go in here. Um, and he does, and he dies, and he is seen to be sort of taken up into heaven. Um, and so then... He is somehow simultaneously taken up to heaven, but also understood to be buried there <laughs> in the Grove of the Furies um, and Colonus. Mm-hmm. So he is understood to be a protector of Athens. Okay. Um, and it's funny because, of course, he's, he's Theban, but he is protecting Athens. So you never know. But anyway, so he, but that's a sort of very specific thing, right, to Athens. So most places you have your own personal kind of local heroes, as I said, exceptions, of course, like... Hercules, where everyone everyone likes Hercules, everyone's got a shrine to Hercules, um, but where you're buried really matters, um, and this remains true, right? This is something. So Christianity, of course, arises in the Middle East. You have Greco-Roman religion, mm-hmm. obviously, <laughs> um, in sort of North Africa and Egypt, where it's running into also things from Egypt and all this other stuff: um, Zoroastrianism, Gnosticism, Judaism. All these things kind of mushed together. Um, so the importance of the body absolutely remains. And no one seems to question it, right? So that's kind of already there before Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right? So Christianity really takes this on, but in no way, I mean, that just doesn't invent it, but really, really just kind of takes this on from the, what's happening in the world at the time, right? Um, and famously, right, so I said, like, Sparta said they stole the bones of Orestes. Stealing someone else's hero was a great ploy. Um, the idea was, generally, if, if you got them, that then they had wanted you to steal them. Oh, okay. Right? Because otherwise they wouldn't have let you. Right, so it's not like they're forced to come work for me now that I got them. It's that they, they sort of, they must have planted the idea in you. That you come and yes, come and take yes. me away. Yes. Okay. Yes, this other place is no longer worthy of their protection. You are now worthy of it instead. Mm. Right. So Sparta is now worthy of the protection of Orestes, which is funny. So, <laughs> um, this is kind of the point, right? That um, it's that way you haven't offended them, and that way they are going to work for you. It is also obviously incredibly political. Right. Sure. Um, because, you know, <laughs> yeah, obviously, because now you suddenly have someone else's hero. Right. But- it's a very zero sum game, I think. Right. Yeah. Like the hero only works for one person or one yes. side. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there's some, actually some interesting stories like the statue of Athena that stood on the Acropolis um, that the city that took it um, was then... Uh, besieged and like overrun by you know an invading army and so they destroyed the statue because they thought she it, the way she was standing they thought she had like beckoned the opposing Ooh. army right so that so that's an interesting instance that isn't exactly a relic right this is different because mm-hmm. that's a that's a votive object that is a statue but um but nonetheless right that clearly they had not won her approval by taking it they had 
you know? So you couldn't always be sure <laughs> um, that you hadn't pissed off the, yeah. you know, divine figure in question. Um, but usually, of course, it was decided if, if you won, right? <laughs> then if you won, then clearly the gods the are behind divine us. figure was on your Yeah. Yes. And if you did not, then you should not have taken them and you were being punished for having, like, desecrated their shrine or something, right? So there, there is definitely, you know, the, the other possibility exists, um, but it's known as the translation of relics. Hmm. And that really means theft, <laughs> is what that means. But they were translated. You know, they were moved from one place to another, right? Yes, it is a great euphemism for what was going on, which is essentially that different places are stealing each other's relics. And, you know, it's kind of political leverage and also definitely is moral and spiritual leverage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that is something that remains, right? So um, it starts definitely before Christianity um, and continues on through Christianity. So it's why sometimes when you look up, like, where is whoever, the history is just a big old mess, mm -hmm. right? It's why, you know... They're sort of cliches, but people say things like, you know, if every splinter from the Ark was the true Ark, it would have been like, you know, a thousand feet tall or whatever. Oh, yes. Um, and of course, not Ark, cross, sorry. Um, either way, the Ark as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this sort of idea. Um, and obviously, of course, that's sort of the point because, you know, people keep, <laughs> people steal things, things disappear, quotes, air quotes, disappear. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of this going on. So, um, yeah, but it definitely, it starts definitely before Christianity. It is worth pointing out. So obviously, you know, the Middle East, North Africa, Greco-Roman are, are very into tombs <laughs> and votive objects, the hero cult, relics connected to the hero cult. A lot of these things do end up kind of being associated with gods. So you have the sense of heroes becoming associated with gods. You have a lot of things we recognize, Judaism is a little less interested in a lot of that, but there are specific things. So, so the Ark, um, in this case, we're not talking about Noah's Ark. We're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Which is also in a Indiana Jones movie. Yes, 100% <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is definitely a relic. Um, it, of course, isn't originally necessarily considered a relic, it is the housing, right? I mean, it's the box that you carry around, like the Torah, the Ten Commandments mm -hmm. in. Um, but uh, it, um, there is this sense, right, that, for example, that by carrying the Ark before you, that you win in battle, it does clearly start to behave like a relic. Mm -hmm. Or that is to say, it's suggested that it behaves the way we come to think of relics behaving, giving you a certain type of power. Um, the way it's described is is really like it can be a terrifying object. Yeah. Right? I'm actually, I it's been so long since I read those portions of the Torah that I mm -hmm. don't remember what I remember from Indiana Jones and yes. <laughs> what I remember from, yes. you know, the book of uh, yeah. Leviticus or whatever. Well, there's this brilliant sense that like... God like sort of hangs in a cloud over the ark mm -hmm. or something. I mean, it's really sort of phenomenal. Um, and so there is definitely the sense that God is a, that it is a direct two way microphone to God. Um, like all of these things that you think of a relic as being, there is this sense of it being, you know, only certain people are allowed close to it and how purified you have to be before you can walk into it. 
or into the room where it is. Yes. Um, There's plenty of uh, people who get smited for yes. doing it the wrong way. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, um, you know, in, in Indiana Jones, the, it doesn't do a lot. It does at the end, of course. It, it mostly kills Nazis. Um, it also burns the swastika off, like, the crates that it's in. Yeah. Which is great fun. I'm good with that. I mean, yes. Diane. No, absolutely. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, but at the same time, right there, it it is considered to be this very, very dangerous object. So it does behave. It's not maybe originally thought of the way relics are defined. It is not connected necessarily to a holy figure. It's not. Right, it's actually an object in and of itself that ends mm-hmm. up having this great importance, right? But yeah, I mean, it does end up behaving in many ways like a relic. So other than that, though, Judaism doesn't have a ton. Um, not super into it, but miracles are a big thing, of course. And there's some, there's a really interesting one that, you know, it's, it's in Kings. So it's, it's in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, Judaism does incorporate this part. <laughs> um, but, it becomes more important to Christianity um, and the idea that relics exist, um, arguably. And so this is um, 2 Kings 13, 20, 21. 13, 20 to 21. Um, Elisha has died and been buried. So he's a disciple of Elijah, right? So he dies. He's oh, buried. yes. He's the one who calls the bears out of the woods to eat a bunch of children who make fun of him for being <laughs> bald. <laughs> Ah, uh, prophets are great. Yes. You know? Um, so he, it was a rough oh, and it's worth pointing out, by the way. Yes, we were talking about heroes, by the way. Um, and hero cults for the Greeks, even like they don't have to be people who are good people. I mean, Oedipus is a good kind of example of this. Um, yeah. Sometimes there are some people who do terrible things who are then kind of buried and worshiped as local heroes. You know, maybe kind of the sense of how powerful and evil they were helps you know mm-hmm. like so the idea of being a good person that is also kind of specific to christianity in some ways um powerful is always important right. but good isn't necessarily right that that comes with saints right like, that's, i mean that's we don't remember him as a vlad provider of hugs and fluffy bunnies right right he's vlad the impaler exactly yes um and he is in fact a he is a Christian hero because he fought, you know, Muslims, even though, of course, he also is the origins for Dracula. So it really depends where you are. But yeah, yeah he's a local hero in Romania, of course. Um, yeah, so Alicia, um, yeah, yeah, so he, right, he dies. He's been buried. Um, another guy, right, so, okay, he's been buried in a tomb. Um, another man has died and is being buried. Um, and a band of invaders is, like, seen coming. And so the guys who are burying this guy this other guy who died, they just throw him <laughs> in the other tomb and run away hastily. Fair enough. And when the dead man comes in contact with Alicia's bones, he, this other random dude, um, comes to life and stands up. Yeah. Okay. So he was not only healed, but resurrected. It's right? unusual. So see, right. Yes. Relics. Now, this was not on purpose. Nobody prayed to them. It was not. It just happened because... You know, a prophet. Yeah. You know, the bones of a prophet. They're powerful. They just are powerful. Which is another interesting thing that, um, that is also true of the Ark, but less true of later relics, right? There's sort of more of a sense of radiation mm-hmm. 
that I always get, right? Where it's this powerful force and you cannot turn it off. Like if you are not ready for it, you got to walk in with some lead lined clothes, right? Whereas later sort of in Christianity, generally speaking, relics, um, they work when you're ready for them. They don't, when they're, they're, you know, you can work turn them on and off. Um, they don't burn through, they don't burn a hole through you just because you're not paying attention at the moment. So yeah, they're a little safer, I guess we could say. <laughs> they become a little safer later. Um, earlier, things are just kind of hanging around. You never know what can happen. All right. So it is worth pointing out that, of course, Islam also definitely has relics. Yeah. I mean, right? Of course they do, because it's the, you know, after, I mean, it's in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And after Judaism and Christianity, yes, you're going to have relics. Of course you are. Um, What's fun is that um, in places like um, Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, uh, you have relics from like, I mean, you have a lot of relics. Mm -hmm. So Abraham's pot, cooking pot, okay, that Abraham Abraham would have used. Uh, Moses' staff, oh, famously, yeah. Uh, David's sword. So there we have a sword. Joseph's turban, okay, fun exciting. The hand and part of the skull of John the Baptist. A lot of people claim different things from John the Baptist, particularly the arm that he baptized Jesus with. That's in high demand. Okay. Um, but yeah. And then, so, I mean, they have, there are a lot of things in the palace. Um, so, yeah. Top Copy Palace has, has a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, the Ottoman Empire collected for hundreds and hundreds of years. So yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff there. So when you make, when you make your hodge and you go to, you know, sometimes you see those pictures with the big black cube in the center oh, yeah, where yeah. everybody is is in mecca yes isn't that somehow connected yes. to abraham Ooh, well let's see so let's well let's finish quick okay. with the palace here um because i want to say that they also then so that's all sort of um you know that's a wide variety of stuff but also they have um muhammad's tooth a hair from muhammad's beard an autographed letter uh from muhammad oh, wow um muhammad's Muhammad's swords and bow. So there we have um, his mantle, which is really important. That's one of the big ones. There are a lot of ceremonies about that one. Um, obviously, right? A mantle is a really important one. And then his battle standard, hmm. um, which was used in battle later as well. <laughs> but anyway, so they're known as kind of the sacred trusts and they exist. Muhammad was such a more recent guy. Yep. Although, like, obviously he lived in the sort of, like, early... What would we call it? Pre, <laughs> pre the year one thousand. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. a point in time where, you know, these could potentially have been stuff that he was involved with, right? Like, mm -hmm. I guess I have some doubts as to the skull of John the Baptist, but right, you know, potentially something yeah. Muhammad wrote on. I guess I could believe. Oh that. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We have stuff, um, oh, we have stuff written earlier than that, obviously. So, yeah, yeah. No, things like that are much more possible. Um, but yeah, the other interesting thing, so for example, um, you know, they have started to carbon date relics in various places, and that, you know, sometimes you find people that some relics really are from the time and place they're supposed to have been from. So, th and that, of course, raises really interesting questions because, well, it doesn't mean it's the exact person you're looking for. Um, it, you know, it raises all sorts of interesting questions. Yeah. But that's okay. So those are relics. Uh, back to Mecca. So, um, this is a little bit different. Mecca, um, many places, I mean, on earth 
that are sacred to people are sacred for reasons that are a little bit different from relics. And that is, of course, that there are geographical locations that are considered important mm-hmm. because of what happened there. Um, right? So Mecca is theoretically um, where Muhammad is born. And also outside of, just outside maybe of Mecca or something around there is um, where the Quran was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and yes, there is also the Kaaba that uh, um, yeah. is believed to have been built by Abraham and Ishmael. But it, so it's not sacred specifically because they touched it, though. It's a sacred place for lots of reasons. Yes. Yes. And it is sacred in some sense because they built it. But yes, not, you know, Abraham's pot is sacred just because he touched it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a relic, right? This is a... um this right Mecca as a place is important for a lot of a lot of reasons, some of them being very much what happened there, right? Um and in addition to that, the fact that it yes, um has this structure that was built at one point um by yeah, Abraham and Ishmael. And so you know, that's part of it. But yeah, that it's a little bit um yeah, it's, I guess you could say it's more than a relic, right? Mm-hmm. So geographical locations that are important because of something that happened there, um, that's, you know, the same way we travel anywhere because we want to see the place where something happened, right? We go to battlefields where you don't see anything, but you want to be at the place where this thing happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's a lot of that, of course. Um, but also, right, buildings, you know, we're just, it's important. It's somehow a little different, you know, it's not just because someone touched it, but that right. we really see the thing that they made, right? Like the Wailing Wall, right? The temple, the, mm-hmm. with the only remains of the temple. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, that's a little bit more, more, more than a relic, okay. right? Relics, you know, the point of a relic, of course, we say, oh, that's just a relic. Um, it's a remainder. It's sort of something, some of them are really important, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, right? They're, they're a little bit less. Yeah, buildings are, obviously huge um and of course one of the interesting things about buildings is they can be very old right (laughs) like the wailing wall is is what it is i mean it that is what it is you know the temple was destroyed in like 76 yeah ce you know the parthenon still stands at the top of the acropolis yes um you know i mean stuff can stand for a long time like you know so um yeah. So those become important for, you know, and also in a lot, sacred places, frequently they change religions, mm-hmm. but the place itself doesn't change. Right. Right. If that makes sense. So for example, um, temples get built on top of temples, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And you start excavating, you know, under a mosque and you find a, you know, Christian temple from whenever, and then you find maybe a Roman temple or something, right? So you can just peel back the layers. We've talked about a couple of different times, you know, the layering of Buddhism and Hinduism at Angkor Wat, or Mm -hmm. finding Roman temples um, underneath Christian things in uh, Perugia, right? Yeah, yeah. Perugia has stuff, um, obviously... I mean, everywhere in in Rome. (laughs) Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. You cannot throw a rock um, in Rome without hitting something right. 
that's, you know. And of course, that's kind of the point, right? That it's a sacred place, and so it stays a sacred place, right? And people have come up with a lot of theories about it. Um, the interesting thing, it, it can be even more interesting. Like, a sacred place to Zeus might turn out to be then a sacred place to, like, St. Michael. Hmm. And so you might... So then you have not only... Not just that the place itself remains sacred, it's just the religion that changes, but, like, from sky god to sky deity sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Right? From Zeus to Michael to... Yeah. You know, um, so that there's this sort of... That doesn't always happen, you know, but there can be correlations. Obviously, you know, water. So you might move from Poseidon to whoever. um, And you get this sort of interesting you know, sense. Um, but yeah, sacred, sacred places tend to stay sacred. Um, which does, is different from relics, right? Relics are only sacred as long as you believe in the person they belong to. Ultimately. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas places somehow can change. Yeah. So Mecca, yes, the idea, of course, right. It, it is sort of re-sanctified by the idea that Muhammad was born there. And that the Quran was revealed there. Mm-hmm. But it was previously sacred because Abraham and Ishmael were hanging out and building their thing there. So, right, there is a sacred legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so that, I guess the other point is, right, geography is harder to change. Relics, once you don't care anymore, who cares, right? In the French Revolution... <laughs> Not just the big one, of course, but then they're kept, they're always these little revolutions. Right. That the French do, right? The terrors, the little terrors. They happen like every 20 years. And one of the big things that would happen is like they'd smash all the relics, they'd throw their stuff, you know. So like the patron saint of Paris, um, Genevieve, I think, is the patron saint. Anyway, she gets like tossed in the river and eventually, and so now when you go, like the stone she was on has been smashed, but like put back together. And like just some of her finger bones or, um, they didn't find her again, I don't think, but, uh, someone else had either taken or maybe been given, unclear, some small relics, like parts of her fingers or something, and so they returned them to Paris so that now, like, that's all that's left. <laughs> um, uh, oh France is like that. But anyway, yeah. um, right? But there was the sense of, like, you know, screw the church, get rid of everything, smash, smash, smash. Um, these things don't matter anymore, right? Once you don't believe, um, the relics don't matter. Um, but the places remain, mm-hmm. right? They didn't knock down Notre Dame. <laughs> it stuck around. Wasn't in great shape, but, um, you know, so there is this sort of interesting, um, sense, right? That cathedrals, you know, they can change religions. They can even become, um, you know, civic places mm-hmm. if you want to abolish religion, Somehow the, the places places are still important. Yeah. We should mention also Buddhism. Fewer relics because of cremation. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that the, the ashes can be a relic, right? Like Yes. Can get... The ashes can be. Um, in Sri Lanka, there's the tooth of Buddha as well. Um, but the most common relic for Buddhism, uh, Sharira relics, but specifically, that after cremation of a sort of true master, I guess, um, there can be pearl-like objects that are left. Hmm. And these can be a wide variety of colors. Sometimes they're translucent. Sometimes they're more like milky pearl. Um, and they are considered relics. And they're very, very important. They're a sign of right of the enlightenment of the, the master. 
Yeah. Hmm. Oh, you know, when I lived in Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, there was there was a stupa that had been built um, that contained the heart of a monk who had set himself on fire. Uh, and he was the cover of a Rage Against the Machine album. Yes. So that was, he was famous for that, but he also sort of became a saint for that because they, they said that his heart was not burned and they, and and there's just this stupa. And I want to say it was, um, on the corner of Kakman Tang Tam street across the street from a gas station. Mm -hmm. So he... Uh, I guess for people who are are unaware that he had burned himself in protest of the policies of the South Vietnamese government to toward Buddhists mm-hmm. um, because because they were I think Christian possibly Catholic I don't remember exactly mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. and so the the Buddhist population was very upset so this was actually before the fall of Saigon. Um, yeah. Type of, type of deal. Yeah. 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 Um, there's also, yes, the idea that if a certain part isn't burned, right? Um, I think there's a, a master who was maybe a translator or something like this, a preacher or something, and, um, wanted it to be known that, you know, what he said was true and his tongue was not burned. Mm. And so, you know, that was a sign. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, is a fun. I really, I do really like the, the pearls, the sharira. Yeah, um, it's a sort of wonderful Buddhist um, aspect of relics. But um, yes, the unburned idea, of course, exists in Christianity. Um, it, that if a body is un- uncorruptible or incorruptible is usually the term, right? Um, if it doesn't decay, essentially, that then that is a sign of holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a lot of incorruptible saints around who. Definitely look like mummies. <laughs> Some of them more so than others. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're usually dressed in their, like, bishops' outfits or whatever. You know, whoever they were in life, they're frequently clothed a lot, so you can't see yeah. a lot. Um, but it's not the sort of thing you necessarily take small children to see. It can be, you know, but um, but nonetheless, right, the idea is, of course, that you... Even, you know, mummification is, of course, incorruptible. That's the whole point of mummification. So if it happens to you naturally, essentially, that, um, that then that is a sign of saintliness. If one is skeptical, one, of course, can say things like, well, if you're buried in an airtight thing with no moisture, blah, blah, blah. Yes, this is also true. Um, but what happens, of course, is, right, they bury you, and then they dig you up, like, 20 years later, 10 years later, whatever it is, to check it out, if they think you're going to be a saint. Um, and then, ta-da! Um, and then you'll presumably be put on display so that people can come see you and pray to you. Mm-hmm. Um, not all saints are on display. St. Anthony is not in Padua, but his tongue and vocal cords are, speaking of tongues, because he was a preacher. Oh, goodness. And so they are incorruptible. You can go see them, along okay. with like some fingers and some stuff. Like There's a whole case of stuff. But that's the center point, because he was a golden <laughs> orator. He's one of my faves. I love him. He's Franciscan. Should we mention the Shroud of Turin? That is a solid medieval artifact that, as far as I can tell, has been under dispute for most of its life. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, let's do a quick rundown. I want to do a quick more, like, bodies. Um, So just a quick note. St. Ambrose, who we've talked before, he baptizes Augustine. Um, He, of course, is in in Milan. Um, He lies in between Saints Gervais and Protes, 
um, whom he discovered. Um, when he was building his cathedral, he needed relics. You have to have a relic under the altar to <laughs> okay. sanctify it. And so he had this vision of these two martyrs that he would find if he went to this place. And he did, and he dug them up. I mean, they were in a churchyard, but um, so... <laughs> You know, but anyway, he dug them up and he okay. found them, these two martyrs. Um, and so they're also incorruptible and they're next there on either side of him holding the palm of martyrdom. Um, second century martyrs, of course, right? They were executed for being Christian. Um, yeah, so he lies in between them. Um, so there we are. Also favorite, um, St. Catherine of Siena, oh, whose yes. head is in Siena. Her body is buried in Rome, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, which is behind the Pantheon. Uh, but yeah, her head is in Siena, so you can go see her, her head. <laughs> yes, but her heart is in Rome. Anyway, um, so these are some faves. Just just putting them out there. But you can go see, if you go to Italy, you will see incorruptible saints everywhere. Um, it's pretty impressive, one of my favorite, honestly. Yes, one of my favorite moments, um, I when I was first there as a student, and I was surreptitiously following behind this tour in Italian. Um, you know, this woman was leading this tour group around. And she was explaining, she was pointing at some of them, this was in Florence, I think. And <laughs> she was explaining why there were a couple of incorruptible saints there. Um, and she was pointing out that one of them was very flat, like a skeleton, and one of them was not. One of them was fat. And she asked them what they thought, why they thought one of them was more skeletal and one of them was not. And then the friends I was with like, came to find me and we had to go. And I never found out what the answer was. And I have oh. always wondered what the explanation was for this. Um, and I've been back to Florence since, but I have never gone back there and tried to okay. ask someone yeah. um, what was going on. So that is, um, yes, <laughs> that is that is a question that I that I will learn someday. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, but that is OK. So that's my that's my story there. Um but all good times. Um, yes. So things like the Shroud of Turin. Um, yeah. So there are a number of relics. So here we we hop into another um, another level. So we've talked about parts of the physical parts of the body, right? Um, objects that the person used. Objects that have just touched the person, right? They could it could be a modern piece of cloth that has just been wiped on the body, but it mm -hmm. still will count as a sort of minor relic. All right, these are the, the main variations of relics. Then we hop into <laughs> um, uh, hmm, essentially apocrypha, right? So, for example, the spear of Longinus, the spear itself is not apocrypha because it is in the Bible just, right, it just says that a soldier pierced his side and that blood and water come out. That's John specifically. They don't all say blood and water. And anyway, okay. So there is the spear that's mentioned. Yeah. But obviously then Longinus himself, the idea that he was blind and is cured when the blood and water fall on him, um, all of this is apocrypha. It is considered apocrypha. The, as I said, like the Acts of Pilate, the Gospel of Nicodemus, these are wonderful, but these are considered apocrypha. Um, so the whole story behind that then becomes um, sort of different. Um, then there are other things. So, yes. Obviously there are relics the cross itself, of course, you know, who knows what really happened to it. I mean, it was probably left to rot, essentially. And wood can survive. So, right, mm -hmm. so the sort of idea that there could, that you could find some of the wood isn't a hundred percent impossible. Um, 
the nails of the cross. This is another big thing. The the nails. There are places that claim to have nails, right? Um, Milan has one of the nails. Okay. Um, so, you know, nails could last. Mm-hmm. They could rust away, but they could definitely last. Yeah. Okay. Um, his clothes. The medieval legend goes that the soldiers gambled for his garment. Anyway, so there are specific things, right, that, that you assume are around. <laughs> they may have disappeared, of course, you know, or been destroyed or anything, but that they did exist on some level. Then you get the things that are unclear. Okay, so the Shard of Turin, um, yes, goes to the idea of the burial shroud, essentially, right? That he was, I mean, because he's buried, of course. This is mm-hmm. the whole point. <laughs> he is taken down for the cross and buried immediately because he has to be buried before the Sabbath. And, um, of course, right? He's just wrapped in a shroud and he is put in this cave, essentially, this tomb that's this cave. And... The question is kind of, what happens to the shroud? <laughs> um, the funny thing is that, of course, like in paintings and such, he is generally depicted wearing it when resurrected, because nudity is discouraged, generally, in these contexts. But this... So there are a couple things here, right? One of the things is, does the shroud basically go with him? Which is to say, right, he wears it, like he doesn't appear naked, he is mm-hmm. wearing his shroud, and it, you know, goes with him if he goes into heaven or whatever. So it would not have been on Earth anymore. This is a question. Okay. Um, or is it still around? That would be more like Star Wars, mm-hmm. right? Like, Where a Jedi Master disappears. <laughs> he strikes <laughs> Obi-Wan down. Yes, and just the cloak is left. He becomes more powerful yes, exactly. than you could possibly right. imagine. And then yeah. you step on the cloak to see if there's anyone left. <laughs> there's, for some reason, they disappeared out of it. Yeah. Um, that, and I'm just going to give a shout out that as I recall, I've only seen it once, but I believe that is what happens in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. There was some commentary about this, that okay. he does seem to disappear out of the shroud, kind of like Star Wars. Okay. Basically. Now, if that is what happened, it seems, I mean, that is not, generally speaking, what seems to be the idea originally. <laughs> but later on, there is this sense that somehow the shroud would still have been around, right? Because it's an earthly thing. So why would he have taken it to heaven? I mean, when, mm-hmm. but the problem is that he's still physically present, right? So he is bodily there. So he does need some physical type of clothing. Right. So if it's not the shroud, what's he wearing? These are all the questions, right? This is what happens when you really get into this stuff. Well, anyway, so basically the shroud, it either did or didn't stay on Earth. Okay. Oh, we should mention Jesus's foreskin yes. is the one relic that people can get behind. That definitely is a relic that people are like, it existed. It doesn't obviously, right? It's when he's a baby. Yeah. He is circumcised because he's Jewish. So his foreskin sticks around on Earth. I remember... We said that St. Catherine used it as a wedding ring. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and then in her official hagiography, uh, Raymond of Capua changes it to be this ring covered with jewels because he presumably realized that possibly <laughs> the people reading it are going to saint her would be less likely to saint her if... They, if they knew yeah, it was a foreskin. Anyway, it's a little controversial. Yeah. It's a little controversial. Um, okay. He personally, you know, but it's still around. Like, the idea is still around. I mean, he doesn't completely erase it out of existence, but it's not his official version of events. Um, 
But yes, but he obviously believed in it and thought that it was very important, but realized that maybe not all of his readers who were looking, you know, <laughs> uh, looking at this, would, would they, would they take it in the right spirit? It was yeah. not clear to him. But yes, she believed that Christ gave her his foreskin um, as a as a ring. Yes, a marriage ring. You know, because, you know, you're a nun, you marry him. Yeah. Um, and there are other sort of, I think, I th there's um, one woman who um, Christ gives her communion, I think, with his foreskin. There's a sort of incredible taste. Anyway, there's a lot of sexuality going on in some of these stories. But... Um, the point is that the shroud, <laughs> uh, there's a bit of an argument of whether or not it would have existed or not. Okay. Now, obviously the Shroud of Turin <laughs> posits that it did, um, exist. And that this is the burial shroud. And that it, uh, you know, kept the image of his face and body in it. Yeah. Or on it. Yeah. And it is been, it has been studied. It has been, you know, um, scientifically analyzed and radiocarbon dated and all sorts of things. How does this image exist? Was it painted on? Like, what happened? Um, you know, there is definitely no conclusive... There have been no conclusive uh, decisions either way, <laughs> in any way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there... Yeah, you know, there's this sense of... Um, so basically in... Let's see, John and Luke... I think both do say that the linen of the shroud was left in the tomb. Okay. Right. So this is kind of, right, the idea where it comes from. And that being said, right, so, so some people do believe in the Shroud of Turin and some people do not. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of depends. <laughs> right. So here you are. Yeah. And so basically the the sort of radiocarbon dating, stuff like this. You know, it also, it gets conserved regularly. So, I mean, it is this kind of, this is the other side of relics, right? That many of them, whatever they are, they are very old, interesting artifacts, right? <laughs> so, um, it is conserved regularly. It dates as far, it seems to date potentially from the 1300s, right? So, it is a kind of, at this point, legitimately interesting artifact, no matter what. Yeah. Right. So it has been restored and kind of, um, you know, conserved and all of these things. The, yeah, the scientific analysis, you know, they have tested, they've tried to, you know, sort of test it, like, to see if it's painted or if it's pigment. And to see what the radiocarbon dating might have been. The radiocarbon dating did put it to the period it first kind of shows up in the record, which is, like, sort of the 1300s. <laughs> okay. But... You know, I mean, this does not put people off if you believe in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it sort of just depends on what you think. Um, the other, it is, um, you know, it, as artifacts go, right? Again, the shroud um, is one of the things that would have been left in this case, right? So, you know, the possibility that this would be it. Basically, um, but yeah, it, it is. It's because it's very sort of controversial mm -hmm. for all the same reasons that a lot of the other stuff that we've discussed, like in heresies and the Eucharist, um, it's controversial really for all these reasons, right? So yes, it is mentioned in the Gospels that there is still linen there, right? Which is to say, the, the shroud or see these strips of the shroud are still there, um, but 
you know, yeah, this sense of not just that the cloth would still be around, but that because this specifically, the idea that sort of miraculously imprinted with the image of his face and body, um, yeah, a lot of these same tensions exist, right? Which is to say, um, what, what, in what ways do you believe, <laughs> um, in the real presence of Christ? In what ways do you believe in the miracle of resurrection? What do you think, sort of, how do you believe this, this mm -hmm. happened? What do you think it meant? A lot of that can sort of define whether or not you believe in the shroud as potentially a real relic or think that that is not, in fact, what the shroud would have been like if it existed. Yeah. And so this is kind of the, the idea. Um, and yeah, I mean, and this, the sense of the shroud, you know, the idea that strips of women are still there still doesn't necessarily match up kind of with the, the shroud itself and the way it's kind of, the way it kind of has this imprint of the body, right? Um, but, you know, they've done, I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of art historians have worked on this under the theory that it was created by an artist. Right. And what would that mean and how would it have been done? <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. I see that the actual study of the shroud is, has its own word, which is syndonology. Oh boy. And it, that is fun. Yeah. <laughs> the OED yeah. cites it from 1964. Ooh. That's exciting. Yeah, with uh, syndonological as early as 1950. Hmm. So. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it runs it. The, the other thing about it, of course, and so I said, talking about Apocrypha, um, that the, again, right, so like the spear is mentioned, the fact that strips of linen are left are mentioned, but it does, because of the sense of it being this image of him, which is definitely not <laughs> mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that runs into sort of the apocrypha of the Veronica, which is, right, the woman Veronica, which probably comes from the name Bernice, but which then is, a, the etymology is then given that her name meant Vera Icon, meaning true image, but actually it mm. doesn't. Like, her name is, that's a backwards <laughs> analogy. Her name was probably, it was Veronica from Bernice, and then the fact that it also means Vera Icon is a great happenstance anyway um but the idea that right as christ was on the road to calvary um that he wipes his she gives him this you know piece of cloth to wipe his face and gets this perfect image imprinted on it um in blood of his face mm. uh and so the shroud of turin clearly runs a little bit into that okay right which is to say and this is why I said the Apocrypha, right? That it leaves behind a little bit the sense of the shroud and what it would have actually been as a shroud and runs a little bit into the idea of the Veronica. Although it does not claim to be the Veronica, of course, because it is the shroud. But obviously this, that sense of it having um, sort of, you know, miraculously imprinted Christ's image um, does run into that, that the idea of the, from the Veronica. Um so, yeah, so that makes it a little bit more controversial. That is one of the things. That is one of the things that makes it controversial. Yeah. One of many. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, okay. But, yeah, like I said, you know, and, of course, to mention Malgus and Passion of the Christ, obviously he is Catholic. And so that is very much the take. And, again, if you're not Catholic um, or, you know, just depending, um, yes, the Shroud is mentioned in the Bible, but the idea somehow that 
it survived in this way is maybe not, you know, something that you believe in the same way. Um, like I said, the Star Wars disappearance is um, one of those things that is kind of questioned because, um, and, you know, in the Bible, the way, you know, it says the strips of linen are lying there. So it does kind of sound like he maybe just unwrapped himself, mm -hmm. which is a little bit different. Right. <laughs> um, that he doesn't disappear because, of course, he's still physically present, which is always the sort of issue here. Right. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, so it, it brings up a lot of questions. But yeah, so relics, you know, of course, they're controversial. They can also just be controversial because different people claim to have the same relic, although people kind of tend to share. Mm -hmm. It's worth pointing out. <laughs> right. Like everyone can kind of claim to have um parts of someone. Uh, the problems come if you claim to have, like, the body of someone and someone else claims to have the body of someone. Then you can get issues. Yeah. But it's worth pointing out, I want to give a final shout-out to Chaucer's partner, because he carry he's a partner, he sells pardons, he's a terrible, terrible man. <laughs> um, like most of Chaucer's pilgrims yeah. in the Canterbury Yeah, house. I was gonna say. Anyway, he's a terrible human being. I mean, some of them are terrible women. Except for the, the wife of Bath, who's freaking amazing. Uh, but the, the nun, well, the prioress is Less amazing. Okay. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so the partner is a terrible guy. But he he sells pardons. We've sort of talked about that in other episodes. But he also has a lot of fake relics. <laughs> um, and so we're really told, right, that he has a, um, a pillowcase that he says is the Virgin's Veil. Okay. Um, and he has a piece of sail, he says, um, that St. Peter had when he went down the sea. Right? And he has a cross... Um, like a, you know, kind of a brass cross full of stones um, that he clearly is, you know, passing off as presumably like, you know, <laughs> gold with precious jewels or something. Mm -hmm. um, and he has um, a glass container of pig's bones that he clearly pretends are the relics of some, you know, important saint. Um, and whenever he finds like a poor person somewhere, um, he basically tries to take all his money for you know, giving him junk, you know, as relics. Um, and so this is, of course, right, this takes us full circle back to why relics engendered a lot of suspicion and controversy, even aside from any of the theological implications of something like the Shard of Turin. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a lot of controversy about them in the same way there was about a lot of other stuff because they, of course, you could, you mm -hmm. could pick up a pig bone. You know, today you can't because people can recognize or test or whatever is this a person or a pig but um yeah you know you could do whatever and be like oh yes this is the bone of whichever saint this is the I mean, hair of the saint this is you know yeah one thing dr katie uh mentioned to me uh one time was that a significant amount of time she spent as a um pathologist people bringing in i found this bone oh gosh. like is this a human bone you know, yes. and being like, no, that's, you know, that's an ostrich femur, that's a deer femur or something. So, wow, you know, yes, you may, yes. you may, if you get a bone that's the right size, you may definitely be able to pass it off to the unwary. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Which, of course, is the, the point here and kind of the problem. Um, it's a di very different problem from like the Greeks. Um, there are a lot of stories of them finding the bones, the bones of heroes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that they would know because they were so much larger than, you know, normal men. And uh -huh. you kind of assume like dinosaurs or whatever, right? Um, but that's, that's 
different somehow, right? Like yeah. that's kind of, we kind of, I mean, I think we tend to find that sort of cool in a way. <laughs> um, this is clearly not that. Yeah, this is fraud straight up. Yeah. And is an entirely different problem, but a huge problem, right? Today, people can be skeptical. Um, sure. And of course, people were skeptical then as well. It is important to point that out. Right? Yes. But, uh, yeah, this was a well-known issue, even, you know, in the Middle Ages. So it's not like everyone always believed all this stuff. Um, it was always a well-known issue. This could be a real relic, right? They do re radiocarbon test things today and find out that they are like bodies from the first century. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not impossible. Right. And some things do have a much clearer legacy. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, there are. And of course, the later the saint is, the more likely you are to definitely have their body. Right. Yes. Like St. Anthony is definitely buried in Panama and St. Francis is definitely buried in Assisi. I mean, these are, you know, um, but and even St. Ambrose. Yeah, that's him. You know, but yeah. Right. This sort of issue of of fraud um, that was very prevalent and is something that does contribute to a lot of issues for sure. All right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that being said, we will talk more about this again when we get to Arthur, because the other side of this is obviously we've pointed out there are a lot of stories attached. <laughs> um, and the stories really take off. I mean, in, you know, they become part of the literary world that is not meant to be believed. Um, there that is definitely meant to be fantastical so yes cool fun and games well i think we better wrap this up now yes on that note thank you for joining me and thank you to everyone for listening let's see we have a facebook page at uh, ask medievalist and a twitter account and a website also with the same name you can tweet us or email us at questions at ask medievalist and feel free to like rate or review our podcasts in whatever various places you like, or, you know, just like post a notice on a telephone poll or tell a friend. That's it. Have a great day and uh, keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. <laughs>